Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Coming up on the show today, we have a terrific conversation between two contributors and friends of the magazine, Alison Schrager, my colleague here at the Manhattan Institute, and her guest for the interview, economist Casey Mulligan. Casey is a professor at the University of Chicago, where he's taught for many years. But he took a break from his academic career to work for the Trump administration, serving as chief economist of the White House Council of Economic Advisors from 2018 to 2019. He has a new book about his time in the White House called You're Hired, Untold Successes and Failures of a Populist President. With the election coming up next week, we thought this would be an excellent time to invite Casey on the podcast. Before we get started, just a couple of announcements. First, we want to invite our listeners to check out the Manhattan Institute's Virtual Civil Society Awards, happening this Thursday, October 29th at 5 p.m. Eastern. We'll hear from five outstanding nonprofits and their leaders, and it should be a great event. If you miss it, you can find it on the Manhattan Institute's YouTube channel, where you can also find all our recent events. Second, subscribers to the magazine City Journal will be happy to know that the autumn issue is hot off the press and should be arriving in your mailbox any day now. Some of the pieces are already available online, but you can check out the full lineup of essays on the City Journal website. That's it for me, and now for our conversation between Alison Schrager and Casey Mulligan. Hi, I'm Alison Schrager, and I'm a senior fellow here at the Manhattan Institute, and today I am delighted to be joined by Casey Mulligan, the Kenneth C. Griffin uh, Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago, who has just written a book I really enjoyed reading in wholeheartedly recommend, um, called You're Hired, um, that is a, a bit of a memoir about his time in the Trump White House, which, um, as I said, riffing off what, uh, a John Cochran review, what really I thought made this book special is, you know, every book that uh, seems to come out of um, the Trump White House is, um, you know, just about palace intrigue, not entirely credible, but this is just a dispassionate description of what went on and how to think about it, how an economist would see it and how to understand a lot of Trump's policies from an economic perspective. Um, so I really enjoyed it and we're lucky we're going to discuss it here with Casey today. So thank you so much for being here. Well, it's my pleasure. It's a favorite topic of mine. Uh, well, I, uh, I, I really enjoyed reading the book and have actually recommended it to several people because you know, I think as an outsider, you don't really understand what's happening um, at all. And, you know, you, you feel like the information you're getting isn't always credible. So this was honestly, I said, the most insight I've had to the last four years that of anything I've read. So I really enjoyed it and have recommended it to several people already. Um, so to get started, you know, you, you had a line in there that um, turned out to be important for a lot of reasons, but also just struck me personally. Um, there's a reoccurring theme throughout this book that you read all the documents, you, you read all the legislation, you read every page of the budget. And you said that's in part because you don't rely on research assistants, um, which made me sad because I used to be a research assistant about 20, more than 20 years ago. And this was actually gave me the start of my entire career. Um, so, uh, as I said, I, I, I mourn for future generations who didn't have that opportunity, but, 
let's talk about sort of some of the things you uncovered actually doing, as I said, a lot of this own, your own grunt work yourself about uh, this whole uh, revelation you had that Medicare for all, in fact, did uh, that budget, that plan did in fact include eliminating private health insurance. You know, um, you're giving me a lot of, a lot of credit. Um, in my class, I like to show uh, like a stack of all the regulations or some really intimidating uh, reading list from government. And I always remind them, you know, there's an equilibrium here. You're thinking from the point of view of a reader, wow, there's so much to read. Um, I don't, I won't have time to do it. Remember, somebody has to write what's read. And there aren't that many original thoughts coming out of Washington. Mm -hmm. So when you've read a few, reading the rest is very efficient because they're mm -hmm. just cutting and pasting. A lot of cutting and pasting going on in Washington. And when I realized um, around the financial crisis um, and, and the aftermath of that, that there was increasingly cutting and pasting from Marx. Things like profits are evil, profits are morally wrong, profits are... Uh, Theft from employees and from customers. You know is that this that's, in legislation. This is in legislation. <laughs> Medicare for all. Really. And, um, in the House version, says it the most explicitly. That is our moral imperative to eliminate profit from the healthcare sector. The whole uh, healthcare sector, like even uh, pharmaceuticals and things like that, where they're well, like even risky businesses. You have to ask Jay Powell and the others who wrote it what what they they have in mind, but it was not targeted at health insurance, for example. Um, and in fact, the uh, Medicare for all it it eliminates private health insurance, consistent with its directive to eliminate profit. Also consistent with single payer, you can't have a single anything unless you're going to have entry barriers to the second and the third. But it also um, requires all health providers to become nonprofit, so no profit allowed. Mm -hmm. And what's extraordinary is you uncovered this um, and no one believed you at first. Right. <laughs> there, there are a lot of people with political experience. I wasn't one of them. Mm -hmm. And their reaction when I told them that was, uh, no, the politicians wrote that, people running for election wrote that, and that's not a way to win elections, to say that you're going to, take away the product from 180 million people. Um, so they were, they were doing the theory rather than the reading. And, you know, I had one encounter like that, and then I printed it, the, that particular page uh, that prohibiting private health insurance, um, put it in my suit coat pocket, and I kept it there for, for the next time, when there were many times subsequent, when people uh, wouldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. um, and it went started with, you know, the guy with the office next to me to the chairman of the CEA to to uh, others in the White House, to the speechwriters, uh, Stephen Miller. Every <laughs> as this information disseminated, there was doubting Thomas's every every step of the way. And I had the paper there for them to touch and believe. Well, I guess that was good preparation for because when uh, Trump did say it publicly, he was called a liar. Yes, he, uh, not just a liar. It was uh, the CNN White House correspondent said that that op-ed where he featured this point, that was the biggest uh, set of presidential lies in, in history, in the history of all the presidency. Um, and they didn't read, of course. I mean, 
nobody read this. And it's not, Medicare for All is not new. You know, the listeners may have only started hearing of it when Bernie Sanders was running for president. But Medicare for All, in, in the version that I've described, prohibiting private uh, health insurance, goes back to uh, 2005 or so. It's about 15 years old. Mm-hmm. It didn't get a lot, a lot of readership um, or e- many votes even or sponsors until uh, the last four years or so. And then th- most of the Democrats our sponsors are co-sponsors of that in Congress. And now very openly and without any fear of political repercussions, say it means eliminating private health insurance. Well, they didn't advertise that part. Mm-hmm. You know, they, oh, they, they said single payer. So you would think if you did a little logic, you'd say, okay, well, if there's just one payer. There must be a prohibition on the second one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not unlike kind of the, excitement about socialism we had in the 20th, earlier 20th century, that there were fantasies about how things worked in other countries. Um, you know, Cuba was supposed to be a paradise and the Soviet Union was supposed to be a paradise. And they weren't, but but Americans aren't there. They are not seeing it. So you can maybe fool them. And it's the same thing about, you know, the single payer. Um, the, the Bernie Sanders plan that so many have signed on to it's not like a plan in any other country. I mean, there, there's, first of all, most of those countries that had so-called singer player plans backed off and allowed private health insurance. Uh, none of them have free health care at, at the point of service in the sense that all you do is show your card and, and you get it. Now, you have to pay something in Sweden when you go to the doctor or you have a hospital visit. Um, and it's, it's, so it's the same kind of exercise, fantasizing about, what's going on on the other side of the ocean and and the miracles that they have and we should have them too. I, I used to live in the UK and it's not single payer because they do have private health insurance if people want to opt into it. But I always tell people, it's like, if you saw what people, like um, the average American would not put up with what people put up with with the NHS, the wait times, the non-private hospital rooms. I think people have a fantasy that they're going to get the same quality care for free. Yeah, I mean, it is a fantasy. And this is well known in history when you, the best way to make, what's the saying? The best way to starve people is to make food free. That's the quality and the quantity is going to be lacking if if you make it free. And other countries don't really do that. Actually, UK would be the closest, even though it does not share a lot of the problems of Bernie's plan, but UK would be one of the closest to Bernie's plan. Yeah, and in there you can see people can opt in to private health insurance if they like. It's far from out, outlawed, but um, it, it, people, uh, I, I don't think most Americans are willing to, like I said, live like that. I sometimes wonder if that, that stemmed from when they started Medicare in the 1960s, that they, they, they modeled on what was the best health insurance at the time. And it sort of got into our heads for a long time that, or has, be not still in our heads that whatever insurance the government offers should be of the highest quality. Yeah, no, no, the um, a lot of these programs were coming, uh, mimicking or imitating or modeled after private programs. Uh, so, sorry, we should get back to your book. Uh, I, like, I could talk to you all day about health insurance because definitely. So speaking of, um, you had some interesting to say about the um, individual mandate. So it turned out not to matter. Uh, why is that? Yeah, supposedly there was a three-legged stool for Obama's health care system, and one of the legs being 
the individual mandate that people have to be forced to buy health insurance. Um, and this is widely, widely accepted in, in our profession, for example. <clears throat> I mean, some people say that Heritage came up with the idea, which is a conservative think tank. I don't know if I want to tarnish them with that, but <laughs> certainly there was support in a lot of the conservative areas for forcing people to buy health insurance. And that's based on a theory, and I got nothing against theories, um, but that doesn't really fit reality. And, and the theory emphasizes adverse election and the, the idea that the, the only the people won't sign up for insurance until they're sick, um, that sort of behavior. And that happens in the real world. But the other thing that's in the model is there's no subsidies. So mm -hmm. Obamacare is not like that at all. It has huge subsidies. And that's enough to get people to uh, avoid the what might otherwise be destructive behavior. You don't need a mandate on top of it. In fact, I say you, if somebody turns down a government subsidy, we Trump ought to send him a thank you note, or right, whoever's the president, because they're um, helping us taxpayers. Um, and the individual mandate does the opposite. It's not a thank you note, it's a punishment. And so it's a lose-lose situation. The, the individual doesn't like to be punished. Um, and we taxpayers are paying money, so that their punishment is a little bit less. It doesn't make any sense. But not everyone receives a subsidy. Are they still buying insurance too, the non-subsidized people? We haven't seen much change in participation. I'm not sure there were many unsubsidized in there in, in the first place before we had the individual mandate. But there, you know, in our study that we did in, of this in, in the White House, we did have some effect in that dimension that there would be people who were paying full price who wouldn't sign up and that might be some kind of loss to the rest of the people in the insurance pool. Mm -hmm. But it, that's overwhelmed by the subsidy effect that we're talking about. Also, there's administrative costs that also get ignored in these models. So when you have somebody signed up for health insurance, you got a lot of administrative, ongoing administrative costs in dealing with that person. And that, that may be a waste if they're not particularly interested in the product. Mm -hmm. So this turned out to be a rather, I guess, useful randomized control experiment. Well, I think the studies are are, are still going on. Mm -hmm. Also, Obamacare is evolving. So I don't know if it, it's worthy of study. Uh, I don't know how clean it'll be, but it is worthy. Hmm. So um, you hear a lot about uh, how the Trump White House has been successful economically because a lot of regulations have been killed or eliminated. Um, but I really am clear on which ones they are. I mean, which ones were the important ones and why were they important? You know, there are hundreds, I'm not sure if it's reached into the thousands yet, but certainly several hundred regulations that Trump got rid of. Uh, and he's also gotten rid of many in the COVID era too, and I've had trouble keeping up with. So actually, which ones are more important is a very difficult question. I'm not sure anybody knows the answer to it. When I tried to deal with that, one thing I thought, well, the agencies are required since Ronald Reagan to track the costs and the benefits of their regulations, um, or at least when they put them in to assess roughly what they might be. And I thought, well, I could just look at the agency's assessment and that would allow me to identify the big ones and as distinct from the small ones. There's certainly lots of regulations that are small. Some regulation might say, oh, this drawbridge over the Connecticut River, 
used to open two times a day and now needs to open three times a day. There's very small regulations like that. Um, so I thought we could do that, and I was sorely disappointed because the agency assessments are they're absurd. Whether it's incompetence or willful uh, absurdity, probably some of both. I mean, there are certainly cases where there's a regulation that they want to push through. And I saw Obama do this, and I saw Trump do this in a few cases. And they lowball the costs, um, way lowball the costs, so that it doesn't reach certain thresholds that will require more attention and more uh, justification. Um, so there's a decent argument that the actual costs of regulations are negatively correlated with the costs assessed by the agency. So that didn't work. That was the dead end. Mm -hmm. um, and then I thought, well, Reagan uh, also required that the agencies get comments when they put in regulations. So maybe I could look at the ones that get the most comments and that would help me pick out big ones. Uh, you'd be a little surprised if there were some massive costs coming from a regulation and nobody wrote in to complain. You know, most regulations get zero comments, like the drawbridge one I mentioned might uh, might have zero comments. And so that really narrows the set. Um, and then a lot of regulations only have a handful of comments. So we focused on the ones I think that had 100 or more, which then narrows it down to a couple dozen. And those regulations, a lot of them are in, in health, regulating the business of health, especially things like prohibiting certain types of health insurance. Uh, that would, those would get a lot of comments. Uh, regulations in telecommunications, like perhaps the most commented regulation ever was net neutrality, which was a FCC regulation. Uh, labor department regulations, regulating the employer-employee relationship. Uh, those would be common. Uh, a lot of regulations, and let's be blunt, on behalf of trial lawyers, um, trial lawyers would like disputes between employers and employees, between customers and uh, sellers to be taken to court rather than dealt with in a more efficient way. Um, and so there were a lot of prohibitions in the Obama years in various products put by various agencies overseeing those products, prohibiting, for example, arbitration agreements. Um, so those are the sort of regulations that got a lot of comments. And then we looked at them and yeah, the ones that get a lot of comments tend to be uh, economically important in terms of having a pretty large dollar effect um, on a per person basis and affecting a lot of people. Um, so that's, those are really the big pieces of, of regulation. There is a certain set of regulations get a lot of comments that aren't that important in the aggregate um, relative to the others, at least. Those tend to be hot button social issues or environmental regulations. Even a small environmental regulation that has a small restriction on what you can do on certain federal lands may get a million comments. Uh, that, that could be an example. Uh, defunding Planned Parenthood, I think that got over a million comments. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that's important for the aggregate economy. It's certainly important to a lot of people, and that's why they wrote in. But in terms of economic activity, it's a fairly small thing. Yeah, because as you said, net neutrality had a lot of comments. But um, you mentioned in the book that some of your de de actual deregulation of the Internet actually ended up in much lower prices. 
And you also mentioned that um, allowing foreign drug, drug makers of generics also really had a major effect on lowering prices. Yeah, a lot of the regulations that I mentioned, they, they're, they simple economic model can describe them pretty well in that it, you have producers who want protection from competition. So they will have a, a barrier to entry, maybe outright prohibiting the product um, or making it very difficult to offer that product. Um, and then they can overcharge the consumer when they don't have competition. That's, a, that's always the constraint. On, on consumer prices. And we saw the, the FDA had quite a burdensome process for getting approval to manufacture a generic drug. So I'm talking about drugs that have been around for a long time. They're off patent. We know their effects. It's not an efficacy or safety question. It's just, okay, it's off patent. Who's allowed to manufacture it? You got to get FDA approval. You still do. I wish Trump had gotten rid of that altogether. But at least now the, the approval is much easier. And when Trump got there, you would see a lot of generic drugs that are only made by one manufacturer. And they were able to charge a brand name price for a generic product that was ridiculous. Um, and Trump came in and he got rid of those, uh, or way trimmed back those entry barriers. You saw a lot of entry. You saw the stock of some of the foreign drug companies who had gained that system, they crashed. And, uh, and the analysts knew what was going on. There was more competition and that that hurt their pseudo monopoly position um, and and the result is drug prices fell not just in generics also brand names p compete against these generics so drug prices fell in nominal terms even more in real terms for the first time in 46 years it's um, again it's something that you're not going to hear that was one of the president's campaign promises and when he fulfills a promise you can guarantee mums the word in in a lot of the the media similar story on the internet uh fcc i think really at google's behest had put a lot of barriers into competing for things like online advertising and consumer data um and that had prevented internet prices from falling like they were all over the world or in canada during the obama years uh trump pulled that out and prices of internet fell so much so quickly that it actually showed up in the aggregate CPI and the Federal Reserve chairwoman noted, wow, something's dragging down the aggregate inflation. What is it? Oh, and they dug in just as a statistical matter. They dug in and said, oh, look what happened. Telecommunication and prices got a lot cheaper very quickly. She never connected the dots and realized, you know, this is deregulation. This is not a one off. This is this is a trend that Trump is removing entry barriers and preventing so many uh, producers from overcharging their consumer. So wait, so let me understand this. So this is access to the internet, like what you pay for access or is it? Yeah. The, uh, oh, the, so how the is service. So you, so what you is have typical family, even one who's not at all rich may have three plans. They might have their home internet plan and one on mom's phone and one on dad's phone. Mm -hmm. And the, um, what this deregulation did uh, reduce the cost of those plans by 40 bucks, not per month, but 40, 40 bucks. And a typical plan may last, you know, two years or something like that. And so how is Google and its ad sales involved in this? They were, when you have a, the, one of the things that, a, that um, Obama was prohibiting 
would be to sell a plan on the cell phone or at home that didn't have sufficient privacy yeah. according to Obama's standards. Mm -hmm. And what that meant is that, you know, AT&T or, or Verizon or Comcast wasn't allowed to see your data and, and use it for marketing purposes. Um, and Google loved that because they already had, Google already has your data, so they mm -hmm. don't want anyone else to have your data. Um, and it's valuable to the companies. That's why they charge $40 less um, for the product. AT&T at one point before Obama did this prohibition, they were offering two plans, an enhanced privacy plan and a less privacy plan. And the less privacy plan was, of course, cheaper. Mm -hmm. And nobody went for the enhanced privacy plan. <laughs> no, yeah. Nobody wants to pay. I think they were charging a $12 a month or something to, for the enhanced privacy. And nobody wanted, wanted that. But Obama forced them to have it, um, which is a typical typical Obama move to prohibit the low quality products that, you know, the people in flyover country might want to purchase so they can use their money for other priorities. But this seems an, a very important point that I never heard before, which is because there's a lot of this momentum behind um, antitrust now is that Google is solely has access to our data and therefore we must break it up or do some sort of antitrust and it sounds like you're saying, like, really, like, it's the regulations we put in place that have created this monster, and we could just get rid of them instead. Well, we did get, get rid of them. So in, in the last, let me say, year or two, the, uh, your Internet service providers have been allowed to use that data and resell that data. Um, and I assume that they're doing it. Um, it certainly was reflected in the prices that they charge. Um, so they're not a monopoly. I mean, it, this is a standard fare at the Department of Justice, let me say, that, you know, they think they say monopoly when there's really a lot of competition going on. I mean, Microsoft was a huge joke, of course, right? Mm -hmm. By the time they discovered Microsoft was a monopoly, they weren't a monopoly. They were getting beaten in the ground by the competition. Um, and I, that's probably going to be the same thing with Google. Do you, I mean, do you think a lot of this deregulation uh, was really important to what was a booming economy up until COVID? No doubt. I mean, like I told you the story just about one of them that got the Federal Reserve chairwoman's attention through the effects that it had. Mm -hmm. Right? She just, it didn't get her attention as a legal question or as a deregulatory question. It was having such massive effects that her look at the aggregate data allowed her to see, wow, something really unusual is happening here. So I, I don't think there's any question about that. And once you look at the types of regulations that are involved, I mean, anything at the Department of Labor, every industry, I think, is there any industry that doesn't have employees? <laughs> so every industry is under the jurisdiction of the Department of Labor and, and uh, regulating essentially every industry through that department is going to have some costs that really add up in the macro level. So, I mean, it sounds like I said there have been a lot of successes that the administration has not gotten credit for. But there also have been criticisms that, you know, as a free market economist, you know, must bother you, like the tariffs on steel and aluminum or restrictions on immigration. I mean, do you feel like those characterizations are, un characterizations are unfair or they're just things you wish you could have done differently? Well, let me take the immigration first. I mean, immigration, President Trump's immigration plan is nothing like how it's characterized and how he approached it is nothing like how it's characterized. Mm -hmm. he, he asked us together with Jared and Stephen Miller to put together 
uh, an immigration plan that could be called, you know, the Trump immigration plan that ideally he'd present to Congress and they would edit it a little bit and pass it. Of course, Nancy Pelosi came, so that's not happening. But that that was our assignment. Um, you know, Rich Burkhauser did a lot of the work on this. Um, and my only two cents I put in when Rich first started, I said, Rich, Gary Becker's book, The Radical Proposal for Immigration Reform, is the, there should be a fee. And I'm Rich and the others kind of laughed at me of, Casey, you're new to Washington. We don't talk about that kind of thing. We're not going to charge a fee for citizenship. And I was like, fine. I let Rich, you know, he Rich, Rich went to his meetings and did, did his work. And he did some good work, I'll tell you about it in a minute. Um, and then what I hear back from one of the first meetings, the president says, hey, citizenship is one of the most precious things we have to offer. We should be charging for it. <laughs> um, and he got no coaching from us on that. He, he rediscovered, you know, the price system. Now he's a good politician. So he knew not to, you know, put that in a, in a draft bill to send to Pelosi, but he, he understood how it worked. So what Rich took a very empirical um, approach uh, among other things, but he, he said, let's put together what are other countries doing and how's mm -hmm. it going? And I think the president's eye was caught by a couple approaches, uh, Canada and Australia. And, and I think one reason they caught his eyes because they're kind of essentially planned version of what Gary Becker said. And they, those two countries emphasize the economic contribution. So they have a point system. Under Becker's system, people who would buy citizenship are the ones who have the most to gain by coming here. Um, and Canada and Australia use a point system that is in a rough way trying to measure what's your economic contribution of coming in the country. Um, and so Trump's plan is a point system plan and the plan that it's his plan, but it was developed by CEA and Jared and Stephen Miller. Uh, I always hear people saying, well, Stephen Miller would never want anything like that. Whatever <laughs> that that's what came out of the policy process. Um, more immigrants, um, who are high skill and have econ economic contribution and by subtraction, I guess, less emphasis on family-type migration. Yeah, I think there's definitely a good economic case for more highly skilled migration and less family migration. This is like 70% of our permanent immigrants are family migrants. But so why in the short term are we cutting H-1B visas, which right now is our main portal for highly skilled immigration? You know, that happened after I left. So... I can give you a little bit more theoretical answer, mm -hmm. disconnecting the dots and what I understand and how this White House operates. President always asking the question when dealing with a foreign country or dealing with an industry, how much are we giving them and what are we getting for it? And that question could be asked towards some of these industries that are getting special access to immigrants. And one of the top ones would be my own industry, the higher education industry. So for years, we, and we continue because, because of the pushback that we gave, we continue to enjoy, relative to other industries, special access to uh, foreigners. And you think of yourself from Trump's position. What is he getting from my industry? N not much, right? We, my industry uniformly hates the man. And well, is that is that true? I mean, like, so I mean, I 
when I was in grad school, you know, a majority of my class was um, foreigners who came on a student visa and then later got an H-1B. And I mean, I think because they were the top tier talent from around the world, I think having them as my peer group made me a better economist, may probably made all of us better economists. I agree with that. Totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, the foreign students, I treasure them. Uh, mm-hmm. They're my co-authors. They're my friends, the best man in my wedding. I mean, I treasure them. But the access that we had to those people, other industries don't enjoy that. If you were a farmer, you couldn't do that. I mean, you have to do it illegally. Even in Trump's immigration plan with the point system gave extra points to education industry. I mean, one of the ways somebody could get points would be interacting with our university system. Mm -hmm. And so instead of the government charging the fee that Gary Becker recommended, that kind of approach, and again, it's what Canada and Australia have, allows the universities to charge the fee. I mean, that can be built into the tuition process. That's a special favor. Um, And I'm not in favor of special favors, except for my own industry. So (laughs) amen. (laughs) Let's let's continue uh, to bring in foreign students, uh, et cetera. What about the tariffs? I mean, I mean, I, I, you point out in the book that, in fact, every administration does some version of this. But, you know, do you think that on net, Trump was more of a pro-free trade president than he gets credit for? Well, he's not an ideologue. So it, it, it's not like he has an ideology that trade is terrible and therefore we need to get rid of it or it's great and we need to have more of it. Um, so I can't pin him ideologically. I can only look at what he does. Um, and what did he do different from previous presidents? I think one thing he did different is he, he had by accident or on purpose, he's focused on some of the big pieces, some of the tariffs that are or quotas that are the most egregious uh, that have been there forever. One of them is the chicken tax. It's a 25% tariff on foreign-made pickup trucks. As a result, we have zero foreign-made pickup trucks. Mexico counts as a, as a domestic-made. That That's a terribly, terrible, wasteful uh, policy. It's been around my entire lifetime. I've seen Toyota that, pickup trucks. Are they made here? Is that why? Yeah. Okay. He has talked about reducing that, that, that tax. Um, I don't know that it's happened. I'm I'm not totally up to date. You know, the talks that I had heard about was with Korea, that they would be allowed to make pickup trucks for our market that would not be fully subject to that tax. So, you know, I, I would much rather see some increases in tariffs from zero to a small number while decreasing these massive tariffs than, you know, keeping the zero tariffs down at zero um, and not doing anything about these terrible big tariffs that have been around forever. I mean, it's the convexity of deadweight cost principle that I'm using here, a very general principle, and I think applies well. The other thing that he he's done different is more to use tariffs rather than quotas. And we ought to appreciate that. I mean, a, a quota gives the money to the foreign companies and a tariff gives the money to our treasury. And you could totally understand why an American politician might better serve his constituents by 
getting the money for the treasury rather than the foreign companies. Uh, some of the people, CEA people from Reagan's era told me how the Japanese companies back then, you know, it was Japan and not China. that was the adversary, if you want to call it that. Um, the Japanese companies would come into the White House and say, please put a quota on our imports. That way we can charge more. Mm-hmm. And Reagan gave it to him. Uh, Trump hasn't really done that. Uh, he's done tariff instead. And that's why he got a trade war and Reagan didn't because the foreign companies are upset by what Trump is doing um, while they very much embraced what, what Reagan did. But it was protectionism either way. So um, we only have like 10 minutes left. So I just want to ask one question. That was one of the uh, sort of more surprising parts of the book is when you describe the president's Twitter strategy and that there's actually a strategy, I think, much deeper than people realize. You talk about when um, GDP growth was higher than expected, how there was even discussion of exaggerating it so the media had to report it correctly. Do you think that, um, I always sort of saw Trump as a brilliant tactician more than a, a strategy guy. Do you think that that's me underestimating him when it comes to his communication strategy? No doubt. Uh, he is consistently underestimated and he likes it that way. He may be upset that I'm even telling him <laughs> how it really works because he much prefers the image of him in his bathrobe just tapping out every tweet with his own thumbs. That's not at all what happens. If you look on his Twitter account, every single tweet is from Twitter by iPhone. Mm-hmm. I never saw an iPhone. <laughs> and I never saw any iPhone in the Oval Office. I never saw any electronic device in the Oval Office other than Dan Scavino's laptop. And I saw Dan Scavino do tweets from that laptop. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it ends up on Twitter, indicated as Twitter for iPhone. That's not how my laptop works. But anyway, um, and there's a reason why they're spoofing those tweets to make it look like for iPhone. That's the image that they want. Um, that helps maximize the the reach. I mean, I think the deeper organizing principle here that helps you understand this and much more is the populist. He's a populist president. The insiders, the elite, they hate him, okay? And they, the data very clearly show this. And he got his support from flyover country. And if you're coming from that direction, what are you going to do? You need a communication channel that does not rely on the, the insiders. Having the Twitter account in the first place is important. You got to get people to turn into it. You know, I got a Twitter account with 2,000 followers. He's got 90 million, okay? You got to get the people signed up for it. And so you got to put out stuff that that's entertaining in, in the sense of getting people signed up. So the bizarre, bombastic stuff, that gets people tuning in. You got to have that um, if you're going to be a populist president. The other thing is you... You need it broadcast even beyond Twitter. Now you need the media's help. What are you going to do? They hate you. You got to do some kind of trade with them. And his trade is, you know, they need to talk about the topic he wants to talk about. And in exchange, they can call him a liar. (laughs) And that's, that's pretty much the trade. So he'll start out giving, you know, often we'll give him a number um, or some numbers describing uh, what's going on in the, in the economy. And he'll say it exactly, perfect, to the decimal point, described exactly the right way. Media won't pay attention. And then he'll amp up the number. He'll start exaggerating it. So the drug price won in first in 46 years. That's what he did. Nobody paid attention. 
So he said first time in 50 years and then the first time in history until the Washington Post runs a fact check laughing at what a liar the man is. But then they had to talk about, well, what's going on with prescription drug prices? And the Washington Post had to acknowledge that at least by some measures they had come down for the first time in a long time. So that that's the trade. You know, is the media unwilling participants in that unwitting participants in the trade or do they know what's going on? I don't know. You'd have to ask them. But that trade happens all the time. Same with the best in Africa, best policies for African-Americans since Lincoln. <laughs> I mean, it cracks me up. <laughs> you know what the fact check is going to say, right? They're going to go through what he's done, which is their part of the deal. They have to talk about what he's done. And then, then they can get to the part that says, you know, Lyndon Johnson was even better. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> so sort of yeah. sometimes strange retweets of conspiracy theories. Is that part of, you know, the intrigue to keep you watching? Yeah, you got to keep people tuning in. I don't know that he's um, out there looking. First of all, he, we got to get this straight to this, not him in the bathrobe. You know, Dan Scavino, I don't know if Dan is out there looking uh, for a particular conspiracy theory, but he's looking for stuff that's going to get eyeballs. Um, and eyeballs and attention. And even stuff that's politically incorrect, maybe especially stuff that's politically incorrect, is, is going to get attention. Um, that's essential, right? You can't be a populist president unless you have some way to reach the people um, without the uh, media getting in the way. And he's, he's figured out a method. You know, like any entrepreneur, maybe he's the Blackberry of populism and there'll be some iPhone of populism that's even better. And it will take on some of the strengths of what Trump does and, and enhance them with some additional good ideas. Probably, uh, I'm confident that that will happen. But this is where we are in the life cycle of populism right now. He, he's got some new stuff. It's working. Um, and I think that helps you understand so many things that he's done and he is doing and he will do. We only have a few minutes left, so two. So I guess two questions wrapped up into one. Um, if Trump does win re-election, what would you? What economic policies would you like to see? And if Biden wins, what do you fear? Um, well, the Biden fears are a little more on top of mind since we did a report. Uh, I read through Biden's agenda and compared it to Trump's, and try to think about what's the economic impact. The, the green, the, the regulatory agenda in general. So we talked earlier about deregulation. Well, there's a reason why we had a lot of regulations that needed to be removed. And I'm worried those reasons are going to be back with an added push from Biden's new, you know, political bedfellows, the more radical left, um, the Medicare for all crowd. Um, he, Biden's not endorsing Medicare for all, but he is trying to woo those who do, and the Green New Deal and those sorts of regulations. I saw a story that came across today that maybe Senator Bernie Sanders might be the Secretary of Labor. That, that, that's scary, that, that we would have a new level of interference with the employer-employee relationship that even Obama, Obama didn't aspire to. So that, that would be my fears. You know, what, what can Trump do? Uh, Something on immigration, uh, to have all this, this illegal immigration, it should be legal. I mean, that, 
anytime you have a law that you're not enforcing is is, is bad news. Uh, it's bad news all around. It gets enforced against the politically weak and the politically powerful get to sidestep it. You're flirting with not having a rule of law when when you're doing that. So some kind of update of our immigration system so that our immigration can go through legal channels, uh, I think would be great. Um, I know he aspires to something like that. You know, president's not a dictator, so Congress needs to to change, or the president needs to change, and so they can come in alignment enough to to make that happen. And there's a lot more to do on deregulation. There's a, still a lot of regulations. Healthcare is in the top of my mind, and it's not a trivial area. And any, anyway, way too many regulations and price controls in healthcare. And it would be great if he could take a swipe uh, at some of those. And I think it would be a priority for for him, even regardless of what I have to say. Um, he understands the importance of the sector, the size of it, and what a mess it still is, even after being able to make some meaningful improvements in the last three years. It was so good to speak to you again after all these years. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Economics is my favorite topic. Mine too. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.